Power to the pill. In honor of Project Power, what superpower does taking the drug power give you? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and I don't really understand the rules of Project Power, but I'm just going to go with eight arms like an octopus because I could just carry all of my shit and my kids' shit, and I'd, I'd be so powerful. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with giant horse legs. It's me, Dave the Seven, and I'm going to say I could glide like a bat thanks to membranes under my arms. I'm the real Batman, and I'm useless at crime fighting and cannot wear backpacks. Uh, I'm just I'm going to David Ehrlich, and I'm going to go with nine arms, just so mm. I can show what animal has boss. nine arms. Doesn't matter. Uh, I'm, the I'm one nine that does me. A spider with a huge dick. Wow, that's David. <laughs> Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It is episode 313. It's pandemic 23. Whew. It's the week of Wednesday, August 18th, 2020. That's the day that in 1969, Jimi Hendrix and the Band of Gypsies closed out the Woodstock Music and Art Fair, which is this thing we used to do where you would go in person a place and listen to music surrounded by a lot of people. <laughs> it was this thing we used to do called the Summer of Love, and it never yeah. happened again. Yeah, sure. Thing we and definitely not just our baby boomer parents used to do. It seems uh, like an outdoor concert would almost be okay, but probably not. Like the, Nothing's like okay. The one, like the ones they had in England where they all had that like individual little platforms that they sat on. Yeah, I saw pictures of that. That looked, that looked kind of fun. Actually, my uh, brother and sister-in-law went and saw outdoor music in Vermont where they have like almost no cases. Uh, and it was outside and they stayed away from the band. It seemed nice. Who, Smash Mouth? Yeah, it was definitely Smash Mouth. They were in South Dakota. Uh, okay, David, I hear you need to scold our listeners. Yeah, I I came back and recorded an episode on vacation, or you know whatever passes for vacation these days, and yet we did not receive a single review in the last week. For shame! Please go on iTunes Fighting in the War Room. Uh, leave us a review. We'll read it on the show. It's always much appreciated. Uh, in the weeks when we don't hear from you, we just assume that the whole world has uh, has ended. Or beyond start a Patreon for us and give money mm. to it. Just, uh, start a Patreon for us. No, what happened is they put, they put all the reviews in the mail, and then uh, yeah. the Republican Party sabotaged the mail. So really, vote and That'll leave reviews. When, what if we start? Well, uh, what if we? We can still we gotta do Patreon. that. Soon. We gotta... David just offers Asa content if you leave reviews. He already does that for free. He's giving it away. No, you gotta start holding it back. <laughs> you can't David. reel it back. I, in. I, I don't know if the appetite for Asa content is out there. How about this? How about this? Ceaselessly pumping it you out. You get the Asa content for free, but on our Patreon, David will have a second child, and that's exclusive. That's true. I will, get I will exclusive have a Patreon child. A Patreon you baby. Uh, you will Patreon never baby. see it. <laughs> You get the naming rights to that baby if you. That's true. No, for for a hundred dollars a month, you can name the baby. A hundred dollars a month, and that's, rename it later. That's cheap. Oh, comes for a hundred dollars a month, you can name the baby every month. <laughs> the paperwork will be. Um, and for two hundred dollars so a month, money. you can come over to my apartment and babysit it between the hours of nine and five p.m. Monday through Friday. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like this uh, idea of starting a childcare Patreon. 
Uh, leave us a review. We're worth it. We promise. Guys, there's this new big expensive show on HBO called Lovecraft Country. It is not really accurate to call it the next Game of Thrones, except that it is a big genre show on HBO. So maybe they're hoping it will be the next Game of Thrones. Who's calling it the next Game of Thrones? I mean, I think anytime you introduce a big new expensive show on HBO, you're like, all right, how's it going to stick? Oh, my God. If I, Google, if I Google Lovecraft Country Vanity Fair next Game of Thrones, am I going to get a result, Katie? For shame. I don't know. I don't know. Probably, but it'll be about Perry Mason. Mm. <laughs> that was the next Game of Thrones. <laughs> Isn't the next Game of Thrones an actual Game of Thrones show? They're making well, a Game of Thrones show. I thought they kept canceling them. No, they I canceled have a, a, one Game of Thrones show, but they picked up another Game of Thrones show. The, they is the, the one with dragons. The one with dragons yeah. is still happening. Yeah. Is the Naomi Watts uh, not happening? Naomi yeah, Watts uh, is not, not happening. happening. They're like, no, we need quick, more dragons. A quick piping hot Perry Mason take from my wife, uh, <laughs> oh, who says oh, okay. everyone everyone says the show was so beautiful. But it looks like shit, and she she abandoned ship shortly after the dead baby in the opening five minutes. Uh, so it was wow, a big thumbs down I didn't know about that. I'm not from, watching that from shit. Elisa. Yeah, we were just talking about this at work that um that the show is is good, but it it keeps flashing pictures of dead babies, and if you're a parent of a young child. <laughs> I don't know. You don't necessarily want to see that If you're, if you're a 13-year-old boy, hilarious. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I will jokes. say, to, to tee up whoever's going to set up uh, Lovecraft Country for us, that uh, my, my biggest it's takeaway from the first episode was that it looked fantastic. It does look fantastic. It's very uh, lavishly made. It's got not only a bunch of uh, fantastical monsters, but beautiful period costumes and like large group scenes. It's, a, it's the kind of show that you watch and you know that a lot of attention has been put into how it looks it was uh, uh, the pilot was directed by that guy who did 71 Jan Demange, Jan Demange. He, and excuse yes. me he prefers to be referred to as the director of white boy Rick sorry That's that true. was a movie that came out technically <laughs> a movie that came out um basically it is a uh, somewhat sci-fi series uh about a world in which lovecraft's monsters are real and probably more importantly in which the uh the horrible racism and many other bad things by hp lovecraft have been replaced with a show that uses his monsters as a metaphor for racism in america Take that, lovecraft I mean, honestly like if you're gonna do a lovecraft thing it feels like the only way to do it um you know it's by Starring black people by black creators, like really, and these characters very specifically, they know Lovecraft's work. They want to reclaim his stories for themselves. And the book know, it was based people, on is written by a white guy. Written by I was white very guy. surprised I, to find out. Yeah, I don't know much about the book, so I can't weigh in too much on that part of it. But it, I mean, the the show it seems very specifically like well, like managing these themes very well. Like the first episode, you've got. Them entering the sundown town in New England, where basically the sheriffs try to chase them out for being black and in the city limits after It is the sundown. most Georgia-looking corner of New England I have ever seen, even though it does look <laughs> like <laughs> You mean like all the uh, parts of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that look like Georgia, even though it's like Wakanda Indeed. or wherever? Um, anyway, it charged Jonathan Majors and Journey Smollett-Bell and Courtney B. Vance and Michael Kenneth Williams shows up in an episode, but he's not in the first one. Um it is entertaining. It is a horror show, which means I'm already at kind of a disadvantage. And there was, there's, I, so I, I paused watching Watchmen finally to watch this and basically spent the whole time being like, hmm, but Watchmen exists. But I don't think that's entirely <laughs> fair to Lovecraft Country because it's doing something a little different while also being a genre show that's tackling race at the same time. Basically, like, does it, 
scratch the itch of entertainment and thought that this giant budget and it's kind of big splashy place gives you like, is it, is it earning its spot in the, uh, in the national conversation right now? We've we've tell me. We should say that we've all only seen the pilot. Yes. Yeah, we've only seen we've all, some we've critics the out there. People who have reviewed we, this show have watched five. We have watched one because we, we're true, in step with uh, the people. Including friend of the show and Vanity Fair critic Sonia Soraya, who says that the yes. pilot is far and away the best of the five episodes and <laughs> gave a, a rather uh, unkind review to the show. Yeah, and I, I, I saw not, a number of mixed did reviews. Not run a, uh, Polygon did not run a positive review. We had a very, very bright critic named J.M. Mutor who um, does not think that the, the show really reworks Lovecraftian racism and Lovecraftian horror into... It doesn't reclaim it. I think his thought, and maybe this informs my own, but um, that it's kind of like uh, oil and water in a way. And I got that from the pilot, like that sundown scene where, I mean, to describe it in a little more detail in, in the, what is the exact phrase? The sundown cities or sundown? It's sundown, 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 sundown town. And then sundown the sheriff towns. one-ups him and says this is a sundown county. Sundown county. Uh, anyway, like these, quite difficult to you know, our, our, our band of heroes need to get out of this town before sundown or they're going to get taken down by the police and then beaten and maybe shot. And they're so they're like driving. They're putting pedal to metal in their old timey car trying to get across county lines. And it's really intense. And wait, why don't wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. let's let's slow down. That's the end of the episode. The, let's let's the uh, unpack the basic. Wait, hold on, hold on, stop hold on. talking. We're going to unpack the basic <laughs> premise of the show. Wait, da- David, the basic premise of the show. Can you let him finish his sentence? I don't want to. Do the <laughs> well, All I'm saying is that those moments that are packed with the kind of racial tension seem to kind of sit for me and for our reviewer Polygon. Like oil and water, where the, then all of a sudden it, it shifts into this kind of Lovecraftian horror monster movie. Uh, it seems like two different shows to me. But now, David, why don't you? Now that you've kind of, I, I have no interest in stumbled and, myself. I just think no, no, you, no, oh, oh, continuity and for understanding what the fuck you're talking about. Well, uh, we should talk, give I, I assume that people have, uh, have people love it. it when you guys talk over each other on That's the show. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm letting David go here. Hey. Guess what? Dave's going to step into this gap here. That's uh, I really, uh, that was that's the important thing. I like Lovecraft Country, and it doesn't read as Watchmen to me. It reads as Castle Rock. It reads as Bad Robot knowing how to take an IP, and then Monkey Paw Productions, which is the Jordan Peele production company, stepping in and adding stuff uh, that reads a little bit more like race. I think Watchmen very specifically decided it was going to take on race uh that was not as implicit in the source material as i think it is in lovecraft country not well, only because what's the source the book is a, like uh, of watchman <laughs> no can someone please just set up the basic plot of the show for the people i already did Didn't katie, katie did katie did at the very top. monsters exist no no i want to hear about the, the character jonathan majors plays i want to know why, what don't, his why story don't we talk is. about it there's a guy who uh, he was served in the army and he comes home because his dad's missing and his dad's like you're part of this it's uh, what like 19 you know, it's birth- after it's between the world wars 1955 right? I oh it's after world war ii right yeah, yeah, because yeah, he served in Korea. Right, it's a Jim Crow era South. He comes back, 
Um, and he, uh, the, he, he learns that he has this mysterious birthright that's waiting for him somewhere in Lovecraft County, where, uh, country rather, uh, which It is just means New England. It's shorthand for unfriendly to blacks. Luckily, his uncle writes a green book travel guide and needs to head up there anyway. So he plus a down on her luck woman who's just trying to make it in the world and She's can sing really well. She's a photographer. Um, uh, all head up to Lovecraft Country, and because uh, racism, real racism in America, they happen into a very real thing called sundowning towns, which means if it is dark in the town, they could kill you for being black, because that is that legal. Uh, I, I mean, I'm just... Look, look, I don't, know what age, I don't know what age group people listening to this podcast are. What is good about both of these shows and why I think it connects something with Watchmen is both of these shows also have a chance to educate through pulp, much like the Tulsa riot from the uh, first, you know, uh, Watchmen episode. I think, like, because these things aren't necessarily taught in all history books, we're happening across some new media that is going to be the first time people come across this episode. So, the stuff I like about this episode is the weird feeling of dread, the real sundowning towns. The weird stuff about this episode is that it bad robots all over its end in a very odd way, I think, uh, especially since so much of the... Lovecraft fiction, not Lovecraft Country, uh, the book, which even though I haven't read it, I understand is more subtle. Lovecraft, the original, original source material was sort of all about like the unseen and the indescribable. So it seems very odd to take your sundowning metaphor, which would have been great as like an X-Files, this metaphor where it's like, oh, there really are creatures in the woods, but these creatures in the woods are fully in frame. They stop while they're partially lit. You get close-ups on their many eyes. Uh, they are not afraid to show you. It was you, like uh, Evil Dead monster. at the end of the show. I mean, it was really yeah. explicit and, and, and it wacky. seems like if there was a place in the United States that had these sorts of things running around uh, that we would have heard about it and at least no there is a place in the united states where things like this run around it's called the white house wow my god i'm hoping that moving forward (laughs) moving forward the show um embraces that divide like if it's going to be a show that has monsters uh against um you know some sort of uh actual real life racism then i think it does need to do sort of what watchmen did halfway through which is just like embrace you're about you're a dumb superhero show but you're also still about these racism things so the more that lovecraft country is able to connect the history of racism to this sort of like darker history of lovecraft I think the more successful it's going to be, but also the more dangerous it gets to be really irresponsible about what you're saying, where it's like, oh, if we just would have killed all the Masons, like, America wouldn't be like a white supremacist society. So I'm, I'm very eager to see what it is, but it reads like a Castle Rock to me, where a bunch of talented TV writers were given an IP with monsters and horror and horror prompts. And so my hope is some of these episodes... Use H.P. Lovecraft horror prompts through the lens of racism, and at least that's what the pilot delivered on. If they change that format, it's going to feel kind of uh, narratively inconsistent to me. But this one was like an over hour long episode. It plays like a little short film 
Uh, there are no conclusions, really, but that's the most Lovecraftian thing about it I, for me. So it's, I have no idea is, what episode two is. I mean, it, it seems to be more like entertainment driven than Watchmen. It, maybe that's a silly thing yes. to say, but I, I found like the context and the history and and the reframing and the conversation to be kind of richer in that pilot to to Watchmen. And I'm excited to see if if Lovecraft Country can dig deeper, but it seemed to be indulging heavily too in this kind of opening dream sequence where we get to see Jackie Robinson smash a, a Tulu. How do you, is it? Cthulhu? 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 He smashed it with baseball bat. Cthulhu. Yeah. But uh, but then it, it reformed. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of pulp going on in that opening sequence. I mean, it definitely felt uh, like a sister show to Jordan Peele's also uh, produced Hunters on Amazon, which is pulpy in a similar oh, I way. I forgot and, Jordan Peele's involved in Hunters. Yeah, I mean, and these are both shows that I think you know, personally I would I, I, I understand the vibe they're going for, and there is sort of like a uh, a paperback serial vibe about. Both of them, especially Lovecraft Country, where the racism is all, you know, not unfounded by any stretch of the imagination. There are a lot of iconic images, photographs, and works of art that are uh, that are ported directly into the show and recreated um, just to ground it in that reality as well. But it is also like the racism that we've seen so far is is very uh, broad. It is not the subtle, you know, ambient racism that. Um, continues to percolate in this country not that this other kind doesn't but uh um it, it's it's that and, and it leads to a monster of the week type vibe is the feeling that i'm getting having read a couple of reviews and it seems like the next few weeks are all going to go off in different directions even once they um you know are able to have a sort of central location in the the mansion in lovecraft country uh where they arrive at the end of the pilot um yeah it's all it's all a bit uh it's all a bit of like late august fun it doesn't it doesn't seem to aspire to the same sort of depth that you get out of a Watchmen, um, which was able to sort of have its cake and eat it too. True, but I, I think when it when it does reach for that, it, it's better. Um, I saw a thread the morning after the premiere uh, of someone sharing photos of, I'm pretty sure it was like Jim Crow South, really famous like Time Life magazine photos of, you know, um, uh, the, the malt shop with black line here, white line there, um, or outside of a theater. And it seems like this premiere actually replicated a lot of these photos, this is, which, is, which is interesting to me. This. Well, no, no. That, well, I'm saying that, that those moments and when it's reaching or when it's doing the sundown thing, when it's actually using kind of existential dread of racism, that's that seems a lot more poignant to me than the it seems like it has potential to dig deeper it seems like it could go in that direction and I, i'm not sure if you know the jordan peele name is all over this this is a misha green show it should be mm. she created mm. underground um but jordan peele you know I, I don't know what his you're right about the hunters comparison it's not like his movies i'm not really sure what his tv brand is all about or if this is more of a jj abrams show dave mentioned that this is a bad robot production and I, I also saw someone after the premiere saying that like are all bad robot monsters exactly the same they're all designed exactly the same like this does not look like a lovecraftian Wait, so if you, patches, if you google um, image search lovecraft monsters not they did not look like uh, on that really? note you know there's that one shot where they're looking off into the distance and the, you see the lightning strikes in the background maybe two-thirds of the way through the episode uh and i kept expecting to see and i think this is what the, the feeling they're trying to evoke you know the silhouette of a giant mm. lovecraftian monster somewhere uh because i feel very strongly and i felt this way since seeing the, tra the trailers for the show 
the monsters are too small. I can't fuck with these small monsters. I was so so completely uh, unmoved. Cloverfield by monsters monster at the end. or GTFO? Katie, <laughs> your lips to God's ears. I mean, and, but then, like, you know, the, without, Cloverfield paradox. Monsters. Without uh, without Lovecraft, you don't really have the legacy of the Cloverfield monster and things of that nature. And I think, you know, hopefully they're building in that direction. And the, the shot that I'm referring to from the pilot is teasing something maybe in the season finale. But, uh, man, these Monster of the Week, like, Buffy vibes. And the effects were a little Buffy level with the, the guy who was bit by the thing. I, I thought that part was cool. That was weird. That was, uh, that was gross. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a little fun midnight movie for a midnight movie-less time. But uh, I, I wanted the, the big gravitas of, like, the unimaginable screen-filling horror that I think of when I think of with... Uh, yeah, I miss monster design that had colors in it. It's like yeah. Jurassic Park 3 came along and everyone was like, I guess that doesn't work. But, like, why couldn't those things have been red? That would have been, like, five times better than this gray Well, the opening blob. sequence, which goes has, full has comic The red book. alien lady. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it shows you all the colors in its palette. Deja and of Mars. Puts yeah. them away. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think as, like, a Dog Days of Summer Diversion that is made with a phenomenal cast. I was going to um, say, everyone in it is is good. I, yeah, I like great. watching these people drive in the car. And I will say the greatest revelation of watching the premiere the other night was that Journey Smollett. Smollett? Smollett? Okay. Journey Smollett. Journey Smollett. Is, um, she played Denise on Full House, Michelle's friend, the young girl. Does anyone Google memory. image That goes way back. And you'll be like, wait, what? Yeah. Uh, that was my great revelation. Uh, she's also, <laughs> in, obviously, uh, uh, Birds of Prey and yeah, Friday Night Lights. But. I didn't Flash. realize she's been working forever. Um, <laughs> yeah, so all the Smollett kids. Oh they had a whole show. There was a whole show about this of all the Smollett kids and like their own kind of version of Full House. Um, Patches tells the truth. Uh, this her is brother all, was on Empire. It's Mind blown. I uh, know. Her brother was on Empire, Katie. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we, we know. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh yeah, my. Uh, we know all the smallest go together. My MAGA uncles are all over that one. Uh, I believe. Um, um, anyway, let's, she and let's, she is not. She's thirty three <laughs> years old. She is a proud nineteen eighty six baby. We stand someone in their thirties. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> let's do this, and uh, those of us that want to watch Lovecraft uh, Country, give it a try, and we'll check back in maybe when it's done. Maybe halfway through. Maybe if it has that episode, I commit. I think I will. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, something on Sundays. Yeah, Yeah, I think at this point they're they're uh, just someone who needs routine and content to look forward to. (laughs) Um, It's it's uh, appointment television for the time being. Uh, It'll never be Twin Peaks season three again, unfortunately. Oh my god. We can at least note that Jonathan Majors is also in his thirties. If we're standing people in their thirties, yeah, he's he's so good. He's real He's good. Major. He's major. Okay, he is barely in his 30s, though. Yeah, he's I mean, 30s. he's not ancient he like the rest be of older. us. No. <laughs> I mean, none of us look as good as either of them, so.
much is I heard you saw a documentary at a film festival about uh, Ren and Stimpy that is now available on VOD for everybody. Didn't David see this movie too? David, did you see this? I did. This bad, bad movie. Um, I, I, this is a bad, I, I bad saw, movie. I felt uh, miserable misery, misery, misery. And I'm, I, they're all synonyms for each other. But, but it's a fascinating. It's a fascinating bad movie. Um, it checks a lot of boxes for me. I think we've talked about on this podcast that I'm not the biggest fan of like fan documentaries. I think we're over that wave, Dave. You might have the most to say about that, but like for a second there, we were kickstartering every like Back to the Future gets a documentary, Calvin and Hobbes gets a documentary, and they're, yeah. they had nothing to say. I think I think it was oh, the Calvin God. and Hobbes one that really killed that with for me. Dear Mister Waterson, we yeah, that, got, that had to get spout yeah. nothing. Foxtrot got a very strange Israeli uh, film adaptation about young soldiers. It was uh, mm. it was loose, loose, really, yeah, material, really off brand. Strong. Uh, so this is happy, so happy, happy, joy, joy. 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 Yes. definitely. I would definitely call it a fan documentary. It was Kickstartered. Uh, it is about Ren and Stimpy. It it interviews everyone who's important in the world of Ren and Stimpy, from background artists to you know Stimpy. writers, uh, and then of course it also. Uh, interviews John Krafaus. I can't pronounce names, guys. John, John K. K. His name is John K. Um, he is a notorious animator. He created Ren and Stimpy. He is a pervo. I mean, and he would say he is. Like, he has a perverted sense of humor. This is what Ren and Stimpy was all about. Even when it was on Nickelodeon in the early 90s, it was about, like, weird nipple jokes and shitting and sex innuendos and powdered toast man and log. Um this is why we loved the show because you couldn't believe it was on. It felt like a nightmare that you were having at 10 a.m. or 3 a.m. whenever you were watching it. And this documentary goes back through time to figure out like why Nickelodeon would put it on the air. The reason is they had some visionary executives who were like, we need to push the envelope here if we're going to break out as a network and, and compete with Saturday morning cartoons. We need true artists to come in and make their shows. And John Kay got the, the deal of a lifetime to do it, made his weird show. Ren and Stimpy was like a billion dollar merch enterprise at the height of its popularity in the 90s. Um, this is this is all true and it remains true. Ren and Stimpy was really weird and it was really cool. And John Kay was also involved with uh, young women in a way that men should not be, or, any, you know, or anyone what, should be. Um, what are the, was, I mean, not to yeah. go into detail, but like, I know he was kind of a creep, but I don't really know anything else. Well, I think not to go young, into detail is sort of the movie's MO. I mean, this does not, well, this so this does not is, come up this until the last 10 minutes of the uh, The movie was movie. obviously kickstarted and they went into production and halfway through production, John Kay gets accused by these young women animators who, when they were 15, um, John Kay was basically preying on them. They struck up, a, they were fans of Ren and Sippy. They reached out to him and he reached back and, and kind of groomed them and took them under his wing and had sexual relationships with them and was. Brought them to LA, gave them jobs yeah. at the studio. He, they lived with him. And then clear issues of harassment and and mental games, and, and it was bad. It was an abusive relationship. And he, uh, when these claims come out, they're in the middle of making the movie. So they go back to him, and they talk to him about it. And they're like, what's the deal? And he, you know, has never denied that any of this stuff takes place. He, it's just that he has problems, and that he had to go to therapy, and that he, it was all consensual, and he didn't do anything wrong, but he also knows that it might have been bad behavior. And the movie has nothing to say. The movie is just like... If the you've been watching the movie for seventy minutes, 
where like nothing is wrong. And then all of a sudden these accusations interrupt the movie and now it needs a finale. It's not that nothing is wrong. You're watching a movie for 70 minutes about how this guy's father fucked him up. And then it pivots to the last 10 minutes to be like, also, he abuses women. And then it pivots in the last five minutes to the, like, the woman from Nickelodeon being like, all he wanted when he left was the rights to his father character. Why would we ever do that? And it goes and it just like goes back to the father thing. I think the irresponsible thing about this documentary is it half ass tries to answer a question. Yeah. It's not that it doesn't answer the question. It does. It puts the question to him. And a lot of documentaries would have just not gone there. Uh, it interviews. I don't know in this day and age if that's true, but I do I agree it, with your general. It's, it's, a, it's a Kickstarter they, documentary. They had their money. They were in production. They didn't need listen, to go a lot there. of a lot of great works of art in these days have, are some portion of their funds were kickstarted. Let's not lump them all together. As, you know, this sort but of this, like this movie fandom. in the year twenty twenty could not have played Sundance and not talked about what happened with John Kay. You couldn't. This yes, is true. Not but ask I think I, I agree the, with what the question with is what how Dave far is generally because. Because the movie, you know, I, they're in an unenviable situation. I don't think they were making a particularly good or insightful movie to begin with, but they were in the very unenviable position of, you know, having this sort of sprung upon them. Uh, and rather than make the difficult choice to go back and, and rewire the guts of their film, they just tried to tack this on as a code of sorts at the end. Yes. And the result is, as Dave described very well, uh, a really sort of disjointed mess that only has the effect of downplaying these what's, things that turn out to be the heart of the matter. Yeah, what's fascinating is that they also talked to Robin Bird, the young woman who was in the relationship with John Kay and f- did accuse him of misbehavior and harassment later in life. And they give her her time. You know, she even says, like, would uh, uh, Ren and Stimpy wouldn't be what it was today. So many people wouldn't have jobs without John Kay. There's there's a genius to John Kay. Um, and there's a really interesting thread there about like her line in the film is something like pain doesn't create great art, but you don't have to keep inflicting pain to create great art. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is poignant. And that is like the the core of a film you could make and you could explore why this happens in the animation community and why it happened at Ren and Stimpy where John Kay was like drilling people to go to create immaculate backgrounds and, and go over the top with the pristine art that they created, the animation. It's like he drove people into the ground and it's celebrated in this documentary. But you're exactly right. I mean, interrogated. This, this- is a film about nothing more than the process of making Ren and Stimpy. It has no ambition to be a film about it could be any on a DVD. of the more abstract <laughs> things that came yeah. up as a result of the show existing or what it meant to the people who watched it. It is simply a paint-by-numbers, behind-the-music style. This is the Wikipedia of what happened yep. to lead to the creation of Ren and Stimpy. And I think it's because Ren and Stimpy left such a cultural impact and because it has all these thorny issues around it that the documentary feels... Like so, so undercooked as a result. I mean, there's obviously so much more meat on the bone, um, and uh, it's it's really hard not to feel kind of empty by the time it is over. Uh, man, yeah, this documentary left such a bad taste in my mouth that I just blew off even writing about it at Sundance this year. Um, I just kept pushing it to the bottom of my docket until the festival was over. Uh, but you know, if you're a diehard Red and Stimpy fan and you want if you want some talking heads taking you inside the process on the most superficial level possible, then can't do much better than this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Happy, happy, joy, joy is, 
is out there now. And um, I, I, what's fascinating is they're going to reboot Ren and Stimpy, right? Nickelodeon just announced that it's going to reboot the show. I think on Comedy Central they're going to do it and um, clearly try and be more adult. But I don't know. Can you do Ren and Stimpy without John Kay? And you can't – no one wants to do Ren and Stimpy with John Kay. So I think that's the big question. And I'm not sure I'd be thinking about it in this way without happy, happy Joy Joy making me angry about the whole situation. So maybe the film does serve a great purpose. It asks the question, or it forces me to ask bigger questions about something that I wasn't normally thinking about. That's a very yeah. generous way of thinking about it. Also, happy, it was happy an Indiegogo, not a Kickstarter. As someone who likes animation, not <laughs> worth your time. Fuck. Mm. everyone's been watching other than Joyce Carol Oates's foot um, <laughs> patches what's up with spiders I gotta google this uh, Joyce Carol Oates foot picture um, oh do I have to talk about spiders okay. yeah 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 google it later well trigger warning I guess for uh, we're gonna talk about spiders here for a second um, so well for I was gonna talk about Project Power what happened to my I got to talk that's also involving spiders. That's a dumb Netflix movie where you take pills and turn into animals. Um, it's fine. Come on. I saw people saying it was worse than Bright. It's not worse than Bright. Nothing watched, is worse than Bright. I watched some of the fight sequences, specifically the Machine Gun Kelly flame guy like fight stuff. Versus and I will say Jamie that Fox we... With a shotgun. Yeah, yeah we've, uh, we've gotten to the point where... Like, the particle effects look fine. I don't have any visual effects problems with that fight sequence. But it looks like like the kind of movie that would be, like, even if it were in theaters. If it were in theaters and I was going to theaters every weekend to get out of the heat, to get out of the apartment, I could see myself hooking into a project power. But since it's not, I almost feel like I have a wealth of things that I know are better at my disposal. And, like, all my uh, disposable let's have fun stuff is like, ooh, Blade's on HBO Max. Why don't I watch Blade? Is there something about it, Patches, that I need to, I need to watch yeah, this, big this project? Yeah, big movies. No, I mean, you're right. Big dumb movies play on on big movie screens, and you can have big dumb fun. But big dumb movies on Netflix, I don't know. They don't seem to play in the same way. It was a very passive experience for me. I was definitely playing my Switch while watching Project Power. I fully wow. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would play like an idle iPhone game, like Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes or some such, while watching something with full no, on. I've, I, yeah. at at pol- no, I'll tell you I what. Paper Mario, Mario Boss gone, Battle. At po- yeah, exactly. No, I, at Polygon, I've achieved the uh, 20-something transcendent level where I can watch a movie and play Switch at the same time. Thank yeah, you, my hat's off for you. helping me. Is yeah. that what the youths can do now? Oh, the youths? No, I'm not working at the youths level. The youths can watch a movie, play Switch, and listen to a podcast at the same time. That's and I'm sure they are taking oh. in every listeners, of detail. From all listeners who are playing Paper Mario and watching Project Power while listening to this, chime in. Yep. Um, <laughs> No, the Project Power is, is a very stupid movie. I think what's interesting is that it has three main characters. I feel like I never see that in movies where they have to juggle 
people with and keep interesting and uh, Joe Gordon Levitt he hasn't been in a movie in a while hey that's interesting um, whatever it's not bright come on anyway <laughs> let's talk about I'm going to talk about spiders now I want to pose a question to you so I was reading this kind of fascinating article on Vice um, it's about a game that uh, a video game that I'm not going to play so Katie we're in the same camp great here, so you can still comment on it it's uh, called Grounded it's basically like um, uh, what was the movie where they Honey, shrunk, the Honey Shrunk the Kids? Yes, Honey I Shrunk the Kids, but it's a game, so you're being attacked by giant bugs because you are small. Anyway, the question was if um, this game has included an option, an arachnophobia safe mode mm. in its accessibility options. If you are afraid of spiders and this game contains giant spiders, there is a way to eliminate the spiders to. Uh, ease your your fear of of those creatures um and apparently and i didn't realize this because i don't play that many games but a lot of uh, more and more games or at least more players who can create mods for games such as like skyrim a game i do play i guess people created mods to eliminate spiders and even cobwebs from the game because the idea is that arachnophobia is uh, is an accessibility issue or, or something wow. to take it seriously as like if you are deaf or if you're blind visually impaired um you have options are they saying, gameplay are they that. saying that they're taking it as seriously as like, even the people who are coding those mods and they're not built into the programming of the game i are they necessarily levying the claim that this is as serious an accessibility of, uh, issue i mean that's that's the, the thrust of news. this piece that like we should take phobias as seriously as other types of um, impairments um, or issues that are addressed by accessibility in in games. Because um, I'm a full-on arachnophobe, and I read about this game. I haven't played it, but I read about this mode, and I was thinking to myself that in the event that I did play it, that's probably something that I would switch on, because when I play my Dark Souls or whatever else, and there's inevitably a spider area of the game and a big spider boss, and I am just quivering in terror waiting for that to happen. Uh, and if I, you know, in some games you want to be scared, but if I'm playing something like Grounded, which looks like a bug's life or something, um, I would probably do away with that option. If I could apply that option to my apartment, all the better. Um, <laughs> but I wouldn't think that I, even if I played with that mode activated, I wouldn't in my brain categorize it as an accessibility issue so much as like a, a, a flavor, like removing bok choy from a meal that someone's cooking for me because I don't like it. Out or something. Right. Well, cilantro is <laughs> delicious, but not unlike bok choy. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and there's like a texture thing. It's well, but the yeah, I mean the, the I, article, I if- the article, the line that uh, the writer Patrick Klepek puts in here that that says it all is that um, now I've lost it because I was on it. What he says, we may not traditionally think of something like arachnophobia being related to accessibility, but if the mere presence of a spider prevents someone from playing, what's the difference? I find it fascinating. I, I have no hard answers on this. I just think it's one of the more like eye opening. Setting the bar somewhere for for it's types a, of it's an interesting thing to think about a game because a game does need you know mass engagement piece of art and or no. a game is adaptable like you have the ability to like toggle from one mode to another but it's anti art isn't it I mean not to, I'm I'm that sounds like I'm coming down hard on this but that's more of it's anti art with a question mark 
you know, there's been a long, long artists. conversation about whether video games are art. Thank you, Roger Ebert. But yeah, yeah, I, I just wonder if you could control Some of the worst writing he ever did. I'm sad. To yeah. Say. I was recently rereading those articles and they are far from convincing. So that David knows how his video game writing reads to everyone else. Uh, <laughs> no, I understand. Um, <laughs> I mean, if the artist is okay with it, though, like this isn't something where they were like arachnophobes lobbied them. It was like, we want to present this option. Like, why? It feels the idea of being like, oh my god, are they going to make everyone have arachnophobia warnings on their content now? And like that feels but like that is the kind of culture. But like that, that feels is like the, the kind of culture wars that Republicans are always presenting. Like that doesn't seem like the choice Wait, they're presented but with. To bring this some back people to are choosing to to give you an option to not have it, and that seems fine. To bring this back to accessibility issues, I mean, something like The Last of Us Part Two uh, sort of broke the mold and sh- shattered the proverbial ceiling, you know, for yep. in terms of what was available for accessibility options. I mean, they made it so people who um, had very poor sight were able to play it because of intense contrasts and sound clues and everything else. Um, and if, you know, like, this doesn't seem to me to be the same kind of accessibility challenge. I mean, I think it's all about making the game more inviting for people, but I don't know if lumping this in with accessibility is a really, uh, it feels like a disingenuous argument if anyone's trying to make it sincerely. I appreciate that you're just asking the question and I think it's a one worth asking, but I think lumping this in with people who are uh, visually uh, challenged, orally challenged, um, you know, it's, it's not the same. And I say this as someone who is a severe arachnophobia um, <laughs> that, uh, you know, as I, I guess I already said, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just don't think it's one of the same. I think we can use common sense without getting into uh, certain sort of uh, pedagogical arguments about, you know, what is and what isn't. Well, I feel it's like closer to like a content warning. Like I'm going to laugh at every game that has a sticker on it that just says warning includes spiders, but it should be there if they think that's like a problem because it's the same thing with like uh games that involve uh quick time events that might do like something kind of sexual assaulty like uh tomb raider or you know any sort of murder game having sound effects that are just like too fucking realistic there are you don't want to re-traumatize somebody when they aren't expecting it but if you are somebody that has like PTSD and you pick up Call of Duty like of your own free will, knowing you know what Call of Duty is, then I think that you haven't restricted anybody there. You've just let your audience know what they're going into. Yeah, yeah and it's not, especially for not. like video games where it's like you're, you don't you don't you don't have to make a spider. It's not easier to make a spider than it is to make anything else. So uh, I feel it's like... A, actually, it's easier to make a spider in a video game than make a nine-legged spider or with an eight, a, a spider with a big dick like David. But oh, yeah, that's, that's true. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that came back. Uh, and it's also not like you are, sort of as Dave was saying, you're not protecting anyone from... It's not like you are... Um, you're not hiding anything from the real world, from people shielding them from content that, you know, they're, uh, I don't think anyone would call them snowflakes for this sort of thing, you know. Oh, they probably will. Don't worry. Fox well, I think, will find out about this. I, I, th- I think what it raises for me is not, uh, it seems like a very generous thing to include in a game. If you feel like yes. it doesn't infringe on the art, then yeah, include it. And especially if you have the time and money to do that, great. I think what's interesting is if someone made a game that had spiders and they didn't include it, 
would it suddenly be a problem for people? And sometimes we verge on that. Sometimes people set the bar and then suddenly like this is something that that has to happen. And for people who are making smaller indie games like that, it might be a difficult thing to do. And I, I don't know if these types of advancements, especially in the games world that I'm less familiar with, I don't know if that sets a new bar. Um, but certainly based on like just the conversations that erupt out of the internet. I certainly, that, that's what it makes me wonder. And just to clarify that, because it would be a different matter, I would suppose if, if the spiders were actually like the enemies were taken out of the game and the game became substantially easier um, or like the combat became skewed because, you know, part of the balance was off. I believe if I remember from what I read from this original article a couple months ago, that it's simply an aesthetic change. The look of the spiders, they've been like rounded to be unthreatening. And I think, like, yeah, I think they you can also make them smaller, random, like movement. Yeah. There was one um, example in the article where they just replaced all the spiders with uh, like a digital cat face. Just like a picture of a cat would approach you, and you know that was a spider enemy. I don't want to kill that. That's cute. It has, it's a cat. People were saying the digital cat was scarier than the spiders, apparently, in that article. <laughs> which, you know, if I were to turn around, if I were immersed in, say, a medieval game in a Skyrim, and I turned around and there's a JPEG of a cat coming towards me, I would also be startled. Uh, that is the uh, but dumb I, internet I, that I want to live in. That's that's some good dumb internet. Uh, Katie, you've been watching anything or reading anything? Uh, I am watching Dickinson finally, uh, which is fine. Uh, it is enjoyable. It is kind of uh, <laughs> plotless in a weird way. Um, I guess because Emily Dickinson in real life never left her house and never got married to anybody, so like it's kind of hard to figure out the drama of what's going to drive the show. Terrence Davies um, did it, but he didn't... Uh... He didn't devote 10 episodes or whatever he said. One yeah, I didn't have, like, pop music. Um, I tweeted about how there's, a like, the third or fourth episode, they throw a big party, and watching a party episode was uh, both jarring and very nostalgic. Just the entire concept of a party felt like such a, a thrilling idea. Um, I was very jealous of it. Um, and then I also watched Death Becomes Her for the first time. Ooh. I can't believe I'd never seen that movie before. That's, that's I was like fun. A little too young for it when it came out, I guess, and that's why I'd never seen it. And then I don't know, it just like never made the top of the list. Uh, it blows my mind that there was a time when people thought Meryl Streep like wasn't good at comedy because was there it now? Yeah, I mean, Death That Comes Her didn't do that well, and I feel like the whole narrative was like, oh, Meryl, the one thing she can't yeah. do is comedy. It wasn't until she didn't really do another. It one. wasn't was until Meryl... the Iron Lady. I'm trying to make an Iron Lady. Sorry, go oh, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. it. It wasn't until the Iron Lady that people fully appreciated Meryl Streep's comic chops. That's very true. That's still landed. That Oscar. I just want you to know, Thank no you. amount Thank of stepping. You. I can't see your face. You got to turn your screen on. I can't see you. I can see all no, my other. Ever, ever since Dave stealth, come out of the darkness. Grabbed, one of our zooms and posted it on Twitter. <laughs> I, I record in the dark. What I was gonna, what I was gonna ask you, Katie, is that is was Meryl a bankable star? Like you say that people didn't show up to see Death Becomes Her, and maybe Meryl couldn't do comedy, but it was like Meryl a bankable. As far as star? I know, she wasn't. But like Goldie Hawn and Bruce Willis were, and they're the co-stars in the movie. That's and true. Robert Zemeckis made it like. Right after, right in the middle of the Back to the Futures, I guess, um, and after Roger Rabbit. So he's on like an incredible hot streak at this point. So there's ever, and it's really expensive. Like the effects in it are really amazing to see. Like you've probably seen the gif of Meryl's like head turning around backwards. Um, but there's really a lot going on in this movie effects wise. Isabella Rossellini has this amazing tiny role as an immortal woman. Um, it's on HBO Max, so it's uh, free to you if you have it. Uh, he made it immediately after Back to the Future, right before Forrest Gump. That's where death becomes her. Lands. Ooh. It's um, better than both of those movies. 
Uh, it probably is. Uh, it's really good. And like wait, hold for on. a movie you made think by Death a, Becomes Her is better than the Back to the Future movie. I, I have to Back admit, to the Future I have, Three. Oh, mm-hmm. I would say there is no special place in my heart for any of the Back to the Future movies. So. Oh, oh, come on. No. I mean, Back no, oh, Death Becomes Her is not just better than an Back awful to the Future, take. But. Does it name me one said back was to the, he doesn't especially love it. It's name like he's like, one oh, back terrible. to the future movie where someone gets shot in the chest with a shotgun, looks down, sees the giant hole in their sternum, and gives a great reaction shot to the camera. You can't. Michael J. Fox true. almost does that in Back to the Future Three. I think he gets shot in the chest with a shotgun, but he's wearing. He does get. Well, he gets shot in the chest, so with the, yeah. but the plate stops it. He gets oh, up, but he has a clean well, and, Doc, and Doc gets shot in the first one, and he has the bulletproof vest. He does. He does. So it's, it echoes. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. It's like poetry. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. it's like the uh, prequels films. <laughs> There's. This is a bit premature, but uh, in the upcoming weeks, I just want to give a reference, a shout out to the incredible Robert Zemeckis reference in Charlie Kaufman's new movie, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, worth the wow. free price of admission or your Netflix subscription fee. I also spoiler alert. I should probably wait and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the movie in a little while, but I read the book, I'm Thinking of Ending Things as well. It's Ooh. out there in the world. Uh, well, I bra- bought are you the bragging? Book, so, boom. Uh, no, it's a book. Like, it's been published for years. It's not hard to get the book. You had time to read a book. Congratulations. The, the cover of the book, you know, they used to say now a major motion picture, and sometimes they would include the name of the studio, but now the, the cover of the book just has a little red circle that's like, now on Netflix. Netflix. Yeah, it's really, it's very strange. Leak. How advertising's changed in our lifetime. Um, that movie will be on Netflix September 4th. We'll talk about it soon. Yep. I'm going to go next, and then we'll throw it to David on the way out, because I watched a very pleasant uh, 57-minute horror movie shot in quarantine called Host. That's about a Zoom mm. call uh, between some friends where they hold a seance, and one of them makes up a little boy from school she used to know who hung himself, and because she makes it up, they let an evil spirit into their Zoom hangout. Uh, but as a fan of the first Unfriended, and as someone who tolerated the second Unfriended, I applaud you, Blair Witch on Zoom, for knowing exactly what you wanted to do, doing it, and then getting the fuck out with a jump scare, which I usually don't appreciate because I like my horror to sort of like end with like some sort of dread or possibly lead into another chapter of said horror. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the jump scare and then everyone's dead. That being said, the idea of like structuring a movie around a Zoom call using as many um, cliches of Zoom as we've been able to develop as a, a, a world uh, for the past couple of months. And then, you know, doing a very simple possession film with all your... your some old tropes, like uh, one of the characters has a uh, Polaroid camera that she will use to take pictures, and you got to wait for them to develop to see the scary thing that it was on, and that sort of thing. Can you imagine um, having to wait 10 whole seconds for a photo to develop? <laughs> Wild. Primitive. Mixed with, uh, like, those those Zoom backgrounds people do uh, that are videos of themselves walking around in the background while they're Zooming. Uh, all these things are used uh, to affect to tell a horror story that is it especially good? But in terms of like this genre of horror, that's actually clearing the bar because you could make a bad horror movie on Zoom just because somebody had two hundred dollars and like the will to do it. So I applaud uh, these people, these these this British production company, 
for having the idea, being stuck in quarantine, and executing it, it appears safely. So, and your movie's under an hour, so if I'm going to roll the dice on it, I'm going to spend true. less time rolling the dice on Lovecraft Country. Uh, so if you've seen where's, it on Friday... Where's, where can this movie be seen? On Shudder. It is streaming on Shudder. Ah. It's a Shudder exclusive uh, if you subscribe to that horror service. I think that they have fantastic... Uh, like content uh for horror fans but if you also just want to dip in because you're bouncing around different streaming services in this pandemic as one is sampling some things uh try a free shutter trial a seven-day trial and spend 57 minutes of it watching hosts it's you you've done worse things with your life i can tell you uh hmm. david what'd you yeah. do this week well, um, well, I guess I already talked about Terrace House last week, uh, which is still a bit my, my main piece of media consumption this week. I've been playing uh, a lot of Horizon Zero Dawn on the PS4 in preparation for the sequel coming on the PS5 at some point in the I love that determined future. Games journalism. Uh, but, uh, I watched Boys State, which won the Sundance Grand Jury Prize for a documentary this year on Apple TV uh, about the Texas Boys State. Uh, recommend it. I think if some of the other hosts watch it, maybe we can it talk about it. It is so good. It's it so is. Good. I. It is good. I. I'm not sure if I'm over the moon about it, but it's certainly worth watching. Um, so if you subscribe to Apple TV, definitely check it out. Fight, uh, fight, and if fight. you don't subscribe to Apple TV, if you do now, then uh, it'll feel like the Sophia Coppola movies free when it comes out in a couple. Pause months. one second, Katie. Why is Boy State so good? Uh, because it is both kind of like a harrowing look at uh, what politics looks like when it is acted out by 17-year-olds who like kind of understand it and kind of don't. And I also found it a really endearing portrait of these kids who age has to spend their summer like reenacting the political parties rather than going to like sports camp or being lifeguards or whatever. Just a uh, week. And Just a week. A week. Uh, but still, they're all there. They're very passionate about it. I like their enthusiasm, even if it sometimes manifests itself as like weird caveman energy. And the way that it's not just like the jockey, like bro Texas kids who you would expect to take over, but some other kids who like those, uh, you know, basically the, the two main characters of color is a, um, son of Mexican immigrants and then a, a black kid who moved from Chicago. Uh, they are such fascinating characters and the way that they succeed and then like sometimes don't necessarily succeed, I think speaks really well to how people do not have to necessarily reenact all of the divisions that exist in the world, even if that's what they think they're doing at Boy State, um, the way that they can like open themselves up to other people who don't like fit into this strict conservative line they think they're there for. I, I found that part of it really hopeful and also all the characters so compelling. It is so maddening how a certain faction tries to secede, uh, which is just following the footsteps of what kids did the previous year. And they think yeah. it's so fucking cool. Uh, but people like Steven Garza, who is one of the, the main characters, runs for governor in the film, uh, it, it, feel, it, it is certainly a hopeful feeling to know that kids like that are out there, but also that 1,100 kids would be engaged enough for politics with varying degrees of sincerity to want yeah. to participate in this program, even if some of them are bone dumb. Um, yeah, and, and even though in the bone dumb ones, you even kind of start seeing how their brains work and how well, maybe I, they I, have the potential to learn. Yeah, that's true. I wasn't trying to catch in any of the main characters, more some like the the ancillary figures who pop up in the background whose names we never even learn. You know, I think the kid that you may have been referring to in a way, it feels like he stepped right out of Dazed and Confused and was just oh, like 40 is, years uh, too late. Oh, he is a total Richard Linklater character. But he's a complicated kid. Um, uh, also, there is on. a... Uh, 
there's a montage sequence of the talent show they have that is just the most like hilarious and awkward, cringe-inducing thing you've ever seen in your entire life. Like maybe it just watch true. that part. Unless you were in talent shows yourself, in which case uh, this runs a close. No, it, when you're when you're in them, they're not nearly as mortifying because you. No, really you may not have the same it. indexical indexical memory of all of your humiliating moments. <laughs> Watching it from the I outside, it's, it's like when you hear your own voice, where you're like, "Oh God, is that what it was like?" <laughs> uh, the uh, the main thing that I wanted to talk about for the segment was uh, sports. Uh, I've been watching, even though my beloved New York Rangers, after months of anticipation, were swept out of the NHL playoffs without winning a single game. Uh, the hockey playoffs, like the basketball playoffs, are still going on. There are still zero positive cases of COVID. Uh, they're all in bubbles. There's one bubble for the Western Conference in Edmonton. There's another for the Eastern Conference in Toronto. Uh, and then when they finally get to the Stanley Cup Finals, they're all going to be in uh in Edmonton, the two teams that are playing for the championship. Um, but I wanted to talk about it less as a hockey fan and more just about the um, the weight of watching this and the value that spectatorship brings to it. Uh, something really ha- interesting happened on the hockey side of things uh, where, you know, these games are being played. They have the feeling of exhibition games, I guess, from the outside in. There are no people in the stands. Uh, they have some graphic or accoutrement to sort of try and compensate for it's that. It's not that different uh, than what hockey's like normally, I would assume. Boom. Uh, that is a terrible thing to say and flagrantly untrue. I mean, I'm, it's really a, st- a jarring Violation, contract. I'm in the box. You're in the penalty <laughs> box. Uh, Four-minute double minor for uh, low-sticking. But uh, hey, my spider dick. Um, but why did I bring it back? Yahtzee, <laughs> third time. Uh, but the, um, you know, it, it's definitely a different vibe and you can understand how for the people playing in the games that is felt a lot more palpably than it is even watching it at home because they have like fake crowd noise being pumped in it's like a very subtly done laugh track of sorts the game doesn't feel as radically different watching it on tv as it must being in the arena and playing it and something really interesting happened which is that the goalie of the boston bruins who are a very good team and two grasp their goalie is won a stanley cup with them um, he's a franchise guy uh, after three games in the playoffs, he voluntarily opted out to leave the bubble, which is, I think, a step beyond you know some players, a few players, demurring from entering the bubble to begin with because of health concerns and family and whatnot. Um, but he was there and then decided to leave. He does have a newborn child at home. It's all you know, very understandable why he would want to go home, um, especially because the more you win, the longer you're trapped there. But uh, it was the comments that he made in a post-game press conference the night before he left that were really interesting to me, which he was saying that, you know, I haven't played hockey in four months. You're just going out there and trying to do the best you can. Um, but, like, these games feel like exhibition games. I know they're the playoffs, but, like, they feel like exhibition games. And in the back of his head, you can tell that he's thinking, like, why am I playing these these uh, preseason games effectively, even if they're in the postseason, when I'm away from my, my family, my newborn child, uh, his wife who's taking care of the kids by herself, presumably. Um, and it, it was just, you know, it was really interesting to me just thinking of like the emotion you see from the other players, how hyped up they get even playing in these bubbles. And even when you're watching your own team and you're so excited for their success or so demoralized by their abject failure in the case of the Rangers, uh, you, there's a little bit of a disconnect. It's like, do you really believe the sincerity of their emotion. And of course they're not actors. They're not faking it, but like, is it harder to work up that enthusiasm in the bubble when you're playing, you know, 
at a remove from the, the fans who are giving you that feedback to feel certain response. Is it going to feel like there's an asterisk on the team that wins the Stanley Cup, even though the gauntlet they're going to have to go to is, in some respects, even longer than it would be otherwise because there was a qualifying round this year? Like, how real is this? Um, it was just, it, I don't know. It was, and I'm still watching the games, and it's great to have playoff hockey. But, yeah, it's just a, it's a strange in-between for sports right now. I don't know. Have you guys watched any... I've been watching the NBA and uh, with the like Microsoft surface monitors with zoom fans in the seats. Um, I actually, it's, it's surreal and and cool in its own way. I'm not sure I want eight seasons of that, but after watching the last dance and then watching quarantine basketball, it's uh, I'm into the radical shift. I'm into the new world order for at least one year. (laughs) So you're, you're able to get into the basketball games. I am, because I think from almost like a cinematic point of view, like I'm interested in how it has to work. I'm not interested in the games themselves. I'm interested in how we're maneuvering through these strange times and trying to make it as interesting. And, and because of the courts and because of the, uh, of the, the fanless backgrounds, the camera work changes too. And I think that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, they added some new cameras to the uh, way they typically shoot NHL games because there are no fans. They can put cameras in places in the stands where they wouldn't be able to put cameras before. But, you know, there was a game, I think it was the fourth longest game in NHL history because NHL playoff overtime, for my money, the most exciting thing that happens in sports. It's essentially endless sudden death in 20-minute periods um, until someone scores. And there was a game between the Blue Jackets and the Lightning that went to a fifth overtime, which means they almost played three full hockey games back-to-back-to-back. And after six and a half hours of playing, somebody finally scored. And, you know, you could see the elation on their faces and the absolute devastation on the part of the Blue Jackets players. But watching or listening to the announcers try and muster up the excitement without the crowd response. It was just like another blip in the thing that had happened. You know, the horn went off and they're like, ah, I scored and Braden points freaking out. But like, it's, there's just a real disconnect between the stakes and how viscerally you're able to feel them. And I think the players are probably better able to reconcile that Tuka Rask aside than the viewers are. I suppose if it were your team, you know, I, I was my heart was really invested in the Rangers games when they were still in them. But it's it's a really strange spectacle where it feels like it's almost like you're watching something on tape, even when you're watching it live. Like it's taking it's place. A, in this it's other a sitcom reality. with it's a sitcom without the laugh track, which is like it isn't to say that those sitcoms weren't funny, but those sitcoms consistently had laughs because they were laughing, you know, like with you. It's the same, I think, thing. Like, yeah. <clears throat> like it's. Uh, Notable things uh, in sports that happen now will still be notable, but it, like you could be excited over a non-notable thing if you're in a room full of people who are also excited about it. So it, it's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, I, I guess you know it, it. It's succeeding now because we're all like starved for it. Uh, so it is going to be interesting to see what uh, you know things hold together as we uh move out of the pandemic eventually and if anything that they've adapted to you know sticks around uh probably not in terms of broadcast 
maybe some of those new camera angles, but well, yeah, you know, like, having I, a playoffs is so much more doable than having a season. And you see the problems the MLB is having and that the NFL right. is going to encounter having the playoffs, bringing closure to these seasons when you can just lock a bunch of players in a bubble is one thing, but you know, it does, it does make me apprehensive about when, the next hockey season might be because they can't do this for 82 games. The Rangers, my beloved Rangers got the first draft pick uh, for the first time in like 60 years the other day, which is incredible. And they're going to get this phenomenal young player, but it's like, I don't know when the next Ranger game is going to be. It's certainly January seems almost uh, unrealistically early. Um, and the hockey season usually starts in October. So it's like, how permanently is this going to shift the schedule? Um, obviously a lot of these questions are impossible to answer right now. But uh, it, it adds another layer of ambivalence to watching these games, which is an ambivalent experience to begin with. Well, I think it's we interesting still have- that the, okay. the ratings have been going down, too. Mm. Uh, have the they? NBA and NHL. Yeah, the, the ratings are not up to well, their usual snuff, which I guess well, the novelty. Like, yeah. The hockey ratings, the hockey, the, the, the hockey games, I haven't followed like all of them, but the, the first day of games was the most highly rated hockey game since the Winter Classic, which is, you know, like the big annual game they play on NBC on January 1st or 2nd. Uh, And the ratings for the NHL, at least that first day, were through the roof. I don't know if they stayed there. Um, But, uh, yeah, it'll be be interesting. I I don't know if this would hold long-term. I think the the finite nature of the playoffs kind of makes it possible. But uh, it's a really strange viewing experience. it, there's like a, a layer of sadness around it. And all these guys are playing. I mean, it's the, these multimillionaires who are risking life and limb and working themselves to the bone for our amusement for essentially no money. I mean, the players don't get played for, paid for the playoffs. They get paid you know, small fortunes if, for certain bonuses if they trigger them, if they win, they move a team to a certain round, or if they win the uh, Conn Smythe Trophy for the MVP of the playoffs or whatever the case might be. But most of the reason is they're playing there for the love of the game. And, to, and that should be something pure and special. Um, and there is something, it's just, it's just a really strange, everything feels kind of uh, bittersweet about it. Um, I don't know. Well, everything will be back to normal soon. Yeah. Except maybe if we could kill off, <laughs> if we could kill off football, I would be okay with that. Yeah. that would. How's football going to work? I mean, they're in a bubble too, right? By but, assholery. No, just everything. The NFL is the worst. Everything. We're well, gonna, there's I've just so watching, much contact. I saw an episode of the Hard Knocks, uh, the HBO sure, documentary yeah. that goes inside a training camp. I can't remember. I think it was the, the Rams. It's the premiere. I don't. Yeah, I don't really give a shit about football. I actively dislike it. But uh, I was watching all of the sort of uh, safety theater that they go through the training camp to provide the illusion of players being safe, and you know, to some extent, actually protect them but a lot of it does feel like tsa style theatrics you have them spraying down the benches that everyone is if eating, they can't if they uh, can't from, protect them from traumatic brain injury they don't get right. about protecting them from a virus right i mean they're protecting them from the virus so they can all get concussed so they can them. all play i uh, get all yeah anyway yeah, i don't know sports sports, Any, is, I, sports I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you're into sports that i don't find as corrupted as the nfl if you were like super in the nfl <laughs> hockey I, would has be, a con- I would have shut hockey, this whole thing down listen there are some dictatorships that are not as corrupt as the nfl uh but and the hockey does have its own problems with uh traumatic would, you know what's cte stand for concussive trauma 
thing. Something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Derek Bourgard, who was a player on the Rangers, uh, died as a result of uh, traumatic brain injury Ugh. a few years ago after he left the team. It was a terrible thing. Um, but at this point, I think the, the best thing that could come from the best thing that football could give back to our society right now in the world at large is if uh, it blows up so spectacularly, hopefully with no one getting sick or dying, but just as a commercial entity blows up so spectacularly because of COVID and all the blame is left at Trump's feet and uh, football fans who can't live without their, their pigskin action on Sunday afternoons realize who did this to them. Yeah. And then we devolve our nation states devolve into, and I get to be a Raider on the Broncos who. Yeah. And then hockey becomes the only sport we have left. (laughs) And we all become a hockey nation like our, and Canada rules from above. Yeah. Oh, uh, that is Lovecraftian horror. That is Lovecraftian <laughs> horror. Let's go out with this spider dick. That does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. Katie Rich had to leave us a little early to go speak at the DNC. Go watch her speech. Um, she's talking big Biden, big Joe Biden vibes at the DNC. I don't know. Good luck, Katie. You, <laughs> you represent us all. Um, so she is not here. But the rest of us are going to say goodbye and tell us where they can find you on the internet. Dave? Uh, oh, we're just going uh, go to whatever order I fucking want. I'm in control now. All right. Well, you could follow Katie on Twitter at K-E-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. That's Katie Rich, where uh, she tweets about stuff that she worked on at Vanity Fair and pop culture. And she's also on the Little Gold Men podcast, which is a very good podcast. I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter at DA7E. You can also hear me on the Storm Lost Rewatch podcast. It is an okay podcast, but it's a podcast that is very specifically rewatching the ABC series Lost episode by episode. So very specific versus general, all quality for me and Katie. David? Uh, yeah, I'm David Ehrlich. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. Uh, you can find me writing about stuff now that I am back from not writing about stuff on IndieWire. Uh, I reviewed the very, uh, well, I, disappointing might not be the right word because I didn't particularly like Train to, Train to Busan or Soul Station, but the third movie in that trilogy, Peninsula, which is coming to theaters, in quotation marks, this Friday, uh, and I thought was very bad, um, but, uh, and who knows what else we'll be doing this week. You can find all of us, more importantly, on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room, uh, a place where none of you found us this week, but we're all still there. Leave us a review. We'll read it on the show. Be great to hear from you. It should be known that movies are coming out in in Canada. The new SpongeBob movie premiered in Canada this weekend. In like you nine. could do a double feature of SpongeBob and Unhinged. Fun for the whole family. Uh, I am Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon dot com, and where we're writing about all of the things that we're talking about here. So you should check that out. And we're also, I'm also, if you. I have Netflix, and you watched Avatar The Last Airbender, and you might have watched The Legend of Korra, now that it's become full Netflix mainstream uh, this past weekend, or if you're going to catch up with it, good news! Dave and I podcasted about Legend of Korra seven years ago. (laughs) Eight eight years ago. Eight eight years ago? ago? Holy crap. I mean, I, I think that some of the episodes were six years ago, so it's not all old. 
Six the years. the last episode was in December 2014. Until that was the actual core episode. That was the last core episode. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, it turns out uh, because the show came back on Netflix, so did we. Republic City Dispatch, our podcast about Legend of Korra, is back. We're doing some one-off episodes about uh, each season of the series and maybe some interviews. We'll see. Uh, if you are a fan or if you're just getting into the show, I would highly recommend checking our podcast out. I'm sure our opinions from 2013 definitely hold up. Uh, yeah. We were like, all these cops are the coolest thing on the show. Cops, cops, cops. <laughs> Look at those cops. Uh, the best cops. Centerism. Centerism. Uh, anyway, Republic. You can follow the it's show. On, <laughs> it's on. It's part of fightingattheworm dot com slash Cora, or you can find it on iTunes or your podcast apps. Um, that does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back next week, and you should answer are, this week's lightning round question. What are you saying? I was just going to say we are only twelve weeks away now from our next call-in show. Exciting! Yeah, putting that on the calendar. Yeah. Okay, great. I guess we're doing a college show. Um, 12 weeks. Get ready. In the Start meantime, your Rocky training month. Get, get in the waiting room now uh, because it got uh, yeah. too full last time. We'll have to figure out how to do that the right way this time. Um, what is the lightning round question this week that people can answer on Twitter and we will RT them? Uh, you tweet your answer to this at FITWR. In honor of Project Power, what superpower does taking the drug power give you? Uh, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week. What does Katie usually say? Bye.